As an assistant editor to the legendary Sally Menke, Fred Raskin, ACE, worked on both of Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill movies and created a working relationship with the director that launched him from assistant editor to the coveted editor's chair with Django Unchained, though he had edited for other directors prior to Django. Fred has worked, solo or as a co-editor, on films including Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, Fast and Furious, and Fast Five. Today, Fred and I discuss his work on Tarantino's latest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm sure you'll find some surprising revelations and useful editing wisdom. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, just because it was the first thing that, that kind of struck me as I started watching the film, was the diegetic or the, the beds of music that the characters are listening to or that you would imagine are filling their space. Can yeah. You, can you talk to me a little bit about that and determining that, editing with it? Um, yeah, I mean, the entire movie, to some extent, is a product of Quentin's memory of that era. And one of the things that is foremost in, in his mind was that everyone listened to 93KHJ, uh, an AM station that played the, the rock music of, of the era. And he, I mean, even like wrote into the screenplay that like the DJs from that radio station would be to some degree the narrators of the movie. Like you were going to hear them introducing the songs and coming out of them and even the way they read the commercials, like that was all going to be part of the soundscape of the movie. And he actually got a hold of some like 40 CD set that was just all of this KHJ material from 1969 and he listened to all of it um, and I had to have my assistants catalog it all so that when he would say okay I want to use this song which is from this date with this DJ we were able to pull it up and so yeah I mean KHJ is as much a character in the movie as any of the people that's really interesting and did you find that you needed to edit picture with that material or were you trying to edit mute or were you adding that later what was the kind of the timetable of including those soundtrack pieces so when i'm doing my assembly during production you know quentin quentin really does not come into the editing room um during production he he, he just remains focused on shooting the movie he, he literally had to come into the editing room twice during the entirety of, of the, uh, I don't know, I think it was like a five and a half month shoot, something like that, five months. Uh, um, but um, when I'm doing my assembly, I generally am working without music. He's, he's very good about not telling me what songs he intends to use because he, he doesn't want to have the experience of watching it for the first time and to find that I've used the song in a different way than, than he intended. Like sometimes, sometimes he kind of knows down to each verse what he wants to see at what point. And so seeing something that's off is going to throw him mm. and he'd rather see it silent um, and then put the music in later. But sometimes he would shoot with a particular song playing um, as playback. And if that was the case, then I had a pretty good sense as to, uh, that that was a song he was intending to use. And when I knew I would use it and Usually wouldn't be too far off what he intended, but uh, for a lot of the stuff I didn't know, and uh, and and so generally when 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 I had assembled something dry, um, when when he came in, we would try putting the music in against it, and then make the adjustments so that the um, the rhythms of the the edit match the song. 
But if, if, if it was something where I knew what the song was ahead of time, then I would use that. There are probably more jump cuts in this movie than in any of his previous movies. Mm. And a lot of that comes from the, the, the beat of the music, cutting this up in, in, in time with the music. That allowed us to, to get away with things that I don't think we would have otherwise. One of the things I noticed with some of those tracks is the background cut as if the character was listening to it in their car. And so if there was a picture cut, there was also an audio cut. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, like uh, Cliff's Drive Home, I think, is probably the most obvious example of that. Yeah, that's what um, I was thinking about. Where we're collapsing a, a relatively long drive home, and, and one of the ways that, that we kind of tell that story is by having, we hear a different song every time we cut to a different part of his drive. Though it's funny, like, you just kind of, at least for me as I'm working on the movie, I got used to the rhythms of the way we had cut those songs and like they almost formed their own new rhythm. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I'm sure on first viewing it's a little bit more jolting, but, uh, but I kind of fell in love with the way we transitioned from one song to the next. And you mentioned the jump cuts, so let's talk about yeah. that. There are, um, I'm trying to think, There's. You, let me know where those jump cuts are. The most obvious place that most people are going to remember them, because I think it's even in the trailer, is that mm -hmm. spot where... Rick's uh, yeah, kind of castigating himself. After, yeah. after he blows it's, his lines. Yeah. yeah. That was always Quentin's intention for that scene. That is sort of a, a rarity in the Tarantino pantheon because that's a scene that was actually pretty much entirely improv. Quentin had spoken with, with Leo about what he wanted the scene to accomplish, and he gave him kind of the main beats that Leo had to hit. And then he said, okay. I'm going to shoot this from one angle. They, uh, they ultimately ended up doing four takes of it. It's all from this one wide shot uh, inside the trailer. And each take, Leo kind of did his own thing, but found those particular beats that Quentin wanted him to hit. And then it was just uh, stylistically like, Quentin refers to it as his taxi driver sequence. Mm -hmm. um, there was really no way to put that together other than jump cutting it, unless we were literally to just hold on, on, on a shot for five minutes of, uh, of a guy freaking out. But I think the jump cuts kind of uh, give you a, a, a good feeling for um, how frustrated Rick is in, in that moment. I'm really proud of that sequence. Yeah, that's um, a great I, sequence. I, 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 I really enjoy the way the jump cuts tell the story. I think they contribute to the comedy of the scene when, he, when, when he's like, that's it, I'm not drinking. And then like the next cut is him like picking up his flask and taking a drink. Like there's a, a lot of stuff that, that I really enjoy in that sequence. Uh, and, and the other part to doing those kind of jump cut sequences, not only do you have to be conscious of the material that you want to have the audience hear, but you mm -hmm. also need to kind of choose where there's going to be big visual jumps, like he's on the left side of the trailer compared to the right side, or he's sitting and then he's standing, mm -hmm. right? Talk to me a little bit about constructing that, if you can remember too much about about trying to put that together. What were some of the decisions that you had to make? It's funny, I, like, you know, we occasionally would use big sound effects like door slams or like him kicking the table as a cut point. But there weren't really any rules in terms of what we could get away with. In general, I, it tended to work better when he wasn't in the same position. When he's jumping around, it just adds to the insanity that the character is feeling. But we kind of found the beats that we were going to use, strung them all together, and then found the rhythm just watching it through and feeling like, okay, we should lose a few frames here. And, and it was just kind of, we played it back and, and, and felt like 
all right, this is working. Uh, we like this. Um, and, and there were, you know, we tried a, a few different versions. We knew we weren't going to include everything. We watched the whole thing back and felt like, all right, this is doing everything that we needed to do. And, you know, then you play it for an audience, be it, uh, you know, my, my assistants or an actual test audience. And, and, and then you find out whether it's working or not. And in, in this case, uh, you know, everybody responded really well to it. I think there were other jump cut areas in the film, too. Can you talk about some of those other jump cuts? Yes, I mean it's it's funny because of course I went into this talking about uh, about the, the musically based ones, but uh, but but uh, and, and, but that scene actually there is no music under it. But when Roman and Sharon are driving to the uh, to the Playboy Mansion and Deep Purple's Hush is playing, we were able to collapse their drive through the use of jump cuts. It was a combination of of uh, slow motion and and twenty four frames per second, and you know we found certainly with the slow mo using the jump cuts was just a really cool Cool effect of Sharon running her hands through her hair. Uh, oh, we, we have the, the moment with uh, Jim Stacy introduces himself to, to Rick Dalton, which is sort of a weird example. That was a scene that played out in one take, and we wanted to collapse it. And Quentin said, "You know, this is my homage to the Brian De Palma movies of, of the uh, of the late '60s, um, using the jump cuts in this way." So I said, "Okay, <laughs> you know, he's uh, pretty firm that there are no rules." And even though certainly plenty of people would look at that and be like, what are you doing? You can't do that. He's like, eh, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, which is the real joy to working with him. Um, I mean, he knows everything that's come before and he uses that knowledge to great effect. He, he knows what's going to work and, and what isn't. And certainly there's stuff in this movie that people are going to be bothered by. The, the, the fact that we hear from a narrator very early on in the movie and then we don't hear from that narrator again until the, the, the last act of the movie. That's something that I'm sure studio execs would have issue with. And he's just kind of like, look, I use him when I need him. And I don't think the audience has any problem following that. They might feel like it's a little weird, but if it's so weird they're going to hate the movie, then that's kind of on them. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, You mentioned uh, two different things so far yeah. in this interview. One was, you know, oh, that's my kind of homage to Taxi Driver, and then, that, mm -hmm. then that's kind of my homage to Brian De Palma movies. Mm -hmm. And he's... You know, Quentin is certainly one of those people that's kind of recognized as a film aficionado. How much of your interaction with him do you need to be almost at that level of film love? <laughs> it's, it's, it's an interesting question. In order to do the job, probably not so much. In order to converse with him about it, a whole damn lot. Nobody's going to be at the, at the same level as he is. If you ever want to feel like you don't know anything about movies, spend 10 hours in a room with Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, you've you got to roll with it. And he's going he's gonna to talk about movies that he expects you that, that, that you're going to know and you're going to, like, hang your head in shame and say, I haven't seen that. But I'm going to. <laughs> um, the truth is, he knows what he wants. And he's very good at explaining what he wants. And then, uh, you know, we, we can execute it together. And uh, you get a pretty good sense as to what he's going for. And, and then it's just, if you've edited movies before, you kind of understand how you're going to refine it to, to make it work. So I think certainly my experience at doing the job helped. 
but I don't think I needed to have as encyclopedic a knowledge as he has in, in order to pull off something like that. Sure. And if I remember correctly from our previous interview, that's kind of how you met him, right? He's got a, he's got a, a theater that shows a lot of art house films and films that he loves, and you went to that and met him there? No, no, not exactly. Um, okay. um, I met him because I was an assistant for the great Sally Menke on uh, oh, yeah. on the Kill Bill movies. I had assisted Sally on uh, the the two movies that she cut prior to uh, to Kill Bill. I met Quentin. Um, you know, it, it was interesting. Like, we didn't see him at all uh, during the production on that movie, and that was a long production. I, if memory serves, uh, it was about eight months. And when he got back from shooting, he came into the editing room for, for the first time. We would have lunch together, at least initially. Um, once once they really got into it, they, they, like Sally and Quentin would, would would be in the room together, hunkered down. And I've, I've come to understand that. But, um, you know, when, whenever the opportunity arose, we would just engage in conversation about movies. And I think he very quickly had a sense that we were kind of kindred spirits. And I was a regular at the New Beverly long before uh, he, that's the, the theater that, that he now owns, but long before. Before he owned it, I, I was regularly going there to check out uh, revival double features. And so after finishing the Kill Bill movies, I would just randomly run into him at that theater, at various parties. And whenever we'd see each other, we'd talk about whatever we'd seen recently. And, uh, and, and so he kind of kept me in mind so that when they did their rough cut screenings of both uh, Death Proof and Inglorious Bastards, he called me up and invited me to his little friends and family screenings, which was, you know, a, a tremendous honor, really exciting. And there's not really much more thrilling than, than, than getting a call from Quentin Tarantino saying, hey, I want you to come and see uh, our first cut of my new movie. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> starting to remember the story now that that you tell it. I talked to another uh, assistant of Sally's, Phyllis Hausen. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. right. She yeah. was she was on all the pretty horses with us. Yeah, she said that uh, that that was a long production. The Kill Bill went forever. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I think all the pretty horses actually lasted longer when all was said and done. Really? But, um, that, that yeah, Kill Bill for, from the beginning of production to the end of post was about twenty months. Um, and all the pretty horses, which was only one movie, was uh, that was about twenty-two months. So, uh, oh my god! It was it was kind of a running joke among avid vendors that that people are going to be chopping at the bit to get your business on whatever you guys do next. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, pretty uh, funny. Yeah, yeah. And she, I believe, Phyllis's story about Kill Bill was that her job was really, I think, conforming the conforming the avid cut to a film cut so that Quentin could watch Kill Bill projected on film? Yeah, that, that's that's correct. Kill Bill was actually a weird situation because that movie was shot three perf um, Super 35, so you couldn't actually conform work picture. We had to do a film out of the entire first cut and then whenever changes were made more film outs had to be done and those film outs had to be cut into the uh, initial film out with all the movies that i've worked with quentin on as as editor that's the only time he shot free perf everything he's done since has been shot for perf so that we've, we've got work picture printed off the negative uh that can be conformed uh based on the avid cut uh so that we can do screenings in, in 35 or actually in the case of hateful eight uh 70. Is and he's still doing that on on uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You guys were screening 
not just movie, screening screenings, but like scenes or like dailies kind of thing? Uh, yeah, well, we, we definitely did daily screenings. Um, that was for probably the first half or so of, of the shoot. And it, they, they always fall off at a certain point. It, it was it was every day or every other day when the, when the shoot began. And so, yeah, we're, we're projecting 35. Uh, we went to Photochem at first and, and, and then built a screening room downstairs at our production office uh, that, could, that could hold about, I don't know, maybe 70 people, something like that. So the whole crew and cast were invited. But then as, as we got into Whenever we finished a scene, I would turn it over to my assistants to have them start conforming it so that when Quentin wanted to screen it on film, we had that option. We didn't do it that often as we were like putting the movie together, like before we had a complete cut of the movie. I think we screened like what was at that time the first two hours, but which which really only went up through the scene where Rick meets Trudy, the little girl on the porch of the, of the saloon on, on the set of Lancer. We screened all of that actually with Bob Richardson on film. And it was cool to, you know, we, as we, we'd been looking at the Avid for so long and then to get to see it on 35, there was an extra level of authenticity seeing it projected on 35. Uh, you know, once, once the whole movie was put together, I mean, it became a challenge because uh, you know, in general, when you finish a cut, you want to screen it right away. And that's not really possible when you're conforming film. Like there's at least, at least a one day lag time. Mm. And then you also have to think about opticals and titles because you know, those don't just come out of nowhere. So we were definitely forced to screen digitally sometimes when we needed to to watch it right away. Um, We were cutting on uh, avid, DNX 115, uh, so this is HD, and it, and it looked really good projected, but it wasn't film. So we did eventually end up doing at least one of our test screenings was on film. That was pretty amazing. When you were screening dailies uh, on film, was that the first time you were looking at the film, or had you looked at the film in the Avid before? A little of both? Yeah. In, in general, I had watched it on the Avid, but I also, like... When the first day's material came in, I was like, okay, I want to see this on film. So I watched it on the cam. But, uh, but as, as more material came in and my time was more limited, I would kind of uh, watch like one take from each setup um, on the Avid just so I kind of had a sense as to, to how he wanted the scene to come together and to make sure that we had everything we needed. There was never a time when we didn't. <laughs> but uh, The reason yeah. why I asked that question mm-hmm. is because I'm wondering sure. – how you were dealing with either looking at dailies or when you were with Quentin in the in the screening room, were you mm-hmm. getting notes? How were you keeping how are you keeping track of notes just by the, the scene and take numbers or Yeah, I mean you know, my assistants built daily roles. And we knew what takes were on it. And so um, they, they had like a FileMaker Pro thing that would spit out um, a, a screening notes page that I think had like room for six takes on a page. And it would have the scene and take number and actually the camera lens, like any information that might be asked for while we're in the daily screening. Uh, and, and then a little space for me to write notes. And for the most part, what, what I would do is I would sit next to Quentin and anything that he laughed at meant he liked it. <laughs> and I, and I would I would note that and uh, and sometimes he would say to me you know here's what I'm thinking about this um, like there was the scene in uh, in Lancer where uh, where Timothy Oliphant uh, rides up on his horse 
and uh, and the camera follows him and ends on a shot of him framed over uh, Scoot McNary's gun belt. That shot, Quentin wanted that scene played entirely on that shot, but he also shot coverage on it. And we watched the coverage in dailies, and Quentin said, listen, I think I'm probably just going to hold on that shot in the movie. But when you do your assembly, use the coverage, because I'm curious to see what that version of the scene looks like. So there'd be things like that that he would bring up during daily screenings. But uh, but honestly, the most important thing is, what does Quentin laugh at? Because <laughs> that is almost invariably what he wants to see in the movie. I love that idea that you just pointed out, which was he's already he can see in his head what the single shot looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's interested in seeing the coverage version. So you cut the coverage version knowing probably it's never going to make the movie, but you still have to do it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and, and that's the thing, like, the, the seeing it play out as one shot, well, anybody could do that. <laughs> yeah. um, Any editor. So, <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, not even. Like, not a whole lot of editing involved in that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, looking at the coverage like that, that was going to take more time. And I have to say, actually, there was something, there was one thing that I really liked in the, the coverage version, but uh, but ultimately it wasn't as cool as, as, as letting it all play out in, in, in one shot. So that's how it is in, in, in the finished movie. Uh, tell me a little bit about process. It's one of those things that really interests me, just the way a film changes over time, what those decisions are, how easy it is as an editor to kind of unlock your brain from what you've cut to what maybe the film as scene could be or the whole movie could be. So my assembly for this movie was not short. <laughs> it was about four hours and 41 minutes long. So, so there's two hours worth of movie that, uh, that didn't end up making the final cut of the movie. And so we knew going in that there was going to be some stuff that wasn't going to uh, make, make the final cut of the movie. And I think when Quentin came into the editing room, he had a pretty good sense as to what a lot of that material was. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And I think when we got it down to, I guess, I don't, I don't want to exactly call it a director's cut because, because I think the director's cut is, is what's in theaters right now. Sure. But when, when, we, when we got through his, like, the first pass with um, him working with me, kind of getting from the beginning to the end of the movie, I, I think at that point the movie was hovering somewhere around like three hours and 25 minutes. And we kind of knew the goal was approximately two hours and 45 minutes. That kind of felt like that would be, that's what the length of the movie should be. But when we ended up at close to three and a half hours, we're both kind of like, not quite sure how we're going to get there. (laughs) So, um, um, but you know, it it was the process of, of watching the movie, you know, with, uh, with an audience and just, you know, the more times you watch it, the more things you notice. We did something on this movie that we haven't done, uh, in, in the previous ones where when, when we finished a cut, we would watch it silently at high speed and just kind of take notes of anything that like we see that we, we think, oh, this could be a good cut without having to watch the whole thing at speed um, to just kind of come up with ideas for cuts. Um, and that turned out to be very effective. Like, like we, we, we came up with some good stuff that we were able to lose uh, by doing it that way. But I would say probably the most significant cut that we made involved the Lancer material. The idea 
in the screenplay was that there were there were in the screenplay there were four Lancer scenes in the finished movie there's only two and it's it's the middle two the uh, the first and last scene we we ended up dropping but the way it was designed you actually get the story of the Lancer pilot episode over the course of this movie like every time you go to Lancer you get a little bit more of the story and you can actually follow that story that it was one of one of the neat concepts that he had is that if you're paying attention like this is this is another thing you get to enjoy but we we found as we were trying to get the movie down and just kind of watching the movie that if it didn't have to do with Rick Cliff or Sharon it wasn't integral to the movie and in the case of both the first and the last Lancer scenes they were kind of getting in the way like you kind of just wanted to get back to Rick and Cliff so that was a big concept that he had that is ultimately not really represented in in the movie like you you can you have a sense as to what that story is about but you certainly can't follow it especially without having the ending the uh initially um the fourth lancer scene was rick rehearsing his lines and it was it was how you know the movie takes place over three days two in one weekend in february and then and then the third in, in one week one, one night in august and the second day actually ended with um, with Rick rehearsing his lines for that final Lancer scene, and it was it was actually a really beautiful scene, one one of the best pieces of writing in the movie. But it was Quentin himself who said, uh, you know, we, we watched the, the whole movie straight through. He's like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think we have to cut that scene. We have to cut it because we've already gotten to, like. We've, we've already accomplished what this scene accomplished. Like when we see what is now his, his final Lancer moment, um, when, when Trudy comes up to him and says, that's the best acting I've ever seen in my entire life. And he is overjoyed, um, like bringing tears to his eyes. Rick has accomplished what, what he set out to accomplish that day. Like he's, he's delivered the performance that, that he was hoping he could deliver. And that aspect of the story uh, was done. And really, we were kind of all of, of, of the feeling that, once you got past Spawn Ranch, it was time to wrap up the second day. So it really became a, 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 okay. Spawn Ranch is done. Um, let's 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 drive them home and get them watching the FBI together. Just Rick and Cliff together as two buddies who love and respect each other. And and, and then that's going to be the end of uh, of day two. Once we we lost the fourth Lancer scene, then it became clear that well. We're not we're not actually following through on on, on wrapping up this storyline, so we probably don't need the first scene either. It was great conceptually because you kind of got dropped into this Western world without knowing what it was. You were introduced to Timothy Oliphant and Luke Perry's characters, and it, like in this Western, and it was like, is this a flashback? What what are, what are we looking at? It, it was it, it was disorienting, but in a really good way. And then uh, when the scene comes to an end we see Sam Wanamaker the director come in on his uh, on his crane and yell cut and then we see Rick and Cliff arriving on set um, in the Cadillac which you know now it, like that's that's just a moment unto itself here uh, he showed up and actually Trudy noticed him arrive but once we realized we weren't going to use the end of the Lancer story there seemed less of a point to having the beginning so it really just became about Rick's performance within Lancer kind of keeping the movie focused on Rick and Cliff. Other than dropping, I mean, obviously two hours worth of material, the structure probably couldn't change 
I guess it could because there's flashbacks, but w were there any other structural changes? Because otherwise you're kind of following things linearly, like you said, it's day one, day two, day three kind of thing. There were minor things. Um, I think in Quentin's original concept, despite the fact that you're essentially cutting between uh, three different characters, Rick, Cliff, and Sharon, in his original concept, we would be staying with each of those characters for a good chunk of time. We weren't, we weren't cutting back and forth between them that much. Um, it was like, if you're with Sharon, you're with her for 20 minutes. And there were a few things that ended up becoming a little modular. Uh, for, for example, the scene where, uh, where Jim Stacy introduces himself to Rick originally came right after the scene on the porch with Trudy. But we felt it was going to be better to have some time after that scene, like let that scene sink in. So we moved the, the Jim Stacy scene. Sharon uh, picks up the hitchhiker and, uh, on, on her way to Westwood. And then she, uh, she, she, she parks the car and, and, and walks to the bookstore and goes in to, to buy Tessa D'Urbervilles. And then we go to the Jim Stacy scene. And then we come back to Sharon and Westwood. So there was some slightly modular stuff. I don't, I don't think there's anything that was like intended to go earlier that moved later. It's just a few things kind of, kind of moving around a little. There was nothing that was massively reordered. And, even, and, the, and the flashback stuff actually came exactly where, where it had always come. Like that's how it was scripted. Well, the interesting thing in, in, in that restructure that you are just talking about is uh -huh. that's, I, I feel like that happens a lot when you drop significant portions of a movie. You're like, oh, this just has to go. Mm -hmm. You know, it has to. Then pieces that were never meant to be joined are now joined. And when you see them joined, you're like, oh, that's not, that's not a happy thing. What do I do? Right? <laughs> well, in this way, it actually was the reverse. Yeah. Because we had a really happy accident happen. The, the Jim Stacy scene, you know, uh, is intercut with Rick's fantasy about being in The Great Escape. And that the last shot of the great escape scene is Rick as, as Hilt's the cooler King walking away from the German commandant and the framing like matched exactly with uh, Sharon crossing the street in Westwood. And so we cut straight from one to the next and had the music carry over. And it, it, it was just a really nice, happy accent. Like the moment we did it, we we're like, well, this is where the scene has to be. <laughs> it, can't, it can't be anywhere else now. Uh, I love the, the intercutting that happens in the movie. Were there more planned places where you said, hey, why don't we intercut here? Because that allows us to either have this line kind of react to this line or to have this framing of this shot react, you know, interpose with this framing. Um, that might be a hard I, question, but uh, yeah, I, I'm just I mean, I, interested <laughs> in the intercutting. Just when um, you're intercutting multiple storylines, Mm -hmm. How do you, were they always scripted where the intercut happened, or did you say, "Hey, we've got to we've got to change up the intercutting from the way it was scripted"? Not always, but a lot of times, yes. Um, the scene that happens in in the third day where Marvin calls Rick, um, this is like two words: Sergio Corbucci, Nebraska Jim. Um, that scene originally happened at the end of the second day. But we were kind of feeling like we don't, we don't want things to be that positive for Rick um, at the end of the second day. Let's, let's kind of let the second day end with us not necessarily knowing what the future holds for Rick. And then we can get into it when we get into the third day. But again, although that wasn't scripted that way, when Quentin came into the editing room having a pretty good sense that that's what we were going to do with it. Um, were you trying to edit or 
thinking about the editing of the scenes that were actually part of TV shows, were you trying to edit them more like a 60s TV show, or were you just cutting them the way that you would cut the rest of the movie? Probably more more the latter. Not to say that we, like, it, it's interesting. The one thing that he had everybody, that, that Quentin had everybody who working on the movie watch, was the actual pilot for Lancer, except... He knew going into the movie that he was treating Lancer like this is my third Western, um, you know, after, after Django and Hateful Eight. Um, so he wasn't going to direct it like a TV Western. Um, he was going to direct it like a Quentin Tarantino movie Western. And that's because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there was initially kind of a fake out. Like, you, know, you don't know what you're looking at until you realize that it's a show. So it kind of had to feel like the rest of the movie if, if we'd... Uh, uh, if, if we saw it and, and it was it was in the four by three format, you would have instantly known what it was. But when it came to like the Bounty Law episode, um, I, you know, I, I really just kind of went with my gut there. And then obviously Quentin uh, would come in and refined it more so. Uh, and I mean, and certainly it, it, I, I think it probably was initially a little bit more cutty when I'd done my assembly, but uh, <laughs> Quentin was very good about restraining me. Um, so uh, no, there wasn't a conscious effort to emulate the, the cutting styles. The truth is a lot of, a lot of what made it feel so like perfectly period was both the um, obviously Bob Richardson cinematography and the musical choices. Yeah, that's what um, I was thinking. The score definitely makes yeah, it feel like Yeah, I mean, which we, we, we had a running thing going that uh, that that like for all of the, the media in the movie, which is ma- mainly Bounty Law and uh, the 14 Fists of McCluskey, that those those would all be scored by Bernard Herrmann. There's a lot of pieces from uh, uh, that, that he wrote for Western shows. And, and actually, the 14 Fists of McCluskey music is the uh, the score that uh, that Alfred Hitchcock threw out for Torn Curtain. So I didn't know that. Yeah, that, I mean, I, I believe that was the last movie that they worked on together. Hitchcock was uh, was was really not happy with Herman's score for that, um, and, and he threw it out. But Elmer Bernstein re-recorded it, and and so that was uh, that's that's what the Fourteen Fist music is. And there's actually there were three of those in the initial uh, recordings for for there were three three cues that Herman recorded him, uh, himself, and our music supervisor Mary Ramos got a hold of those initial recordings. And when we're at Spawn Ranch and Cliff is walking down the hall toward George Spawn's room or what he hopes is George Spawn's room, the music coming from the television set is one of those initial actual Bernard Herrmann recordings of, of the Torn Curtain score. We, it's, it's force. Uh, it's creating tension, but it's supposed to be coming from the TV. So one of the other things that you mentioned, and I, when I listened to the movie, I totally missed the voiceover at the beginning and only heard it at the end. And I was going to ask it's, you, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's interesting that it starts so late in the movie. You'll remember it when I tell you. Okay. <laughs> um, when Rick introduces Marvin to Cliff in Musso and Franks, when they're sitting at the bar, um, he, he says, um, you know, this is my stunt double, Cliff. Uh, my car's in the shop, so he gave me a ride. Oh um, yeah, now I remember. Yep. And then, and he, then he you didn't hear, really you hear the narrator. <laughs> that's not the reason why it happened. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, that is that's the one time that we hear from the narrator uh, in, in the first part of the movie. Yeah. Um, I think as scripted, there there were there were a couple of other times that he appeared, but. Uh, 
for, for various reasons, um, we, we ended up dropping them. And, you know, it's just something that, that Quentin was kind of like, they're going to understand it. They might not like it, but they're going to understand it. <laughs> Got it. That's one of those interesting things with a, a director-editor relationship. Did you did you try to pitch him or, like, say, why don't we stick try to find some things for the narrator to say in the middle? Or did you just say, hey, it's Quentin Tarantino. I'm leaving this one alone. Um, no, you know, we, we, we did try a few things. Um, and, and like I said, there, there were a couple more that were scripted. Um, but ultimately, uh, we just didn't need them. And it's, it's kind of like the, the, the narration in The Hateful Eight, um, it also kind of comes out of nowhere. And, you know, for some people, it doesn't work. And I understand. It's jarring. We haven't, we haven't heard from this character before. Who is this person? But it's, it's how Quentin chose to tell the story. This, this is not a guy who's afraid of breaking the rules. Um, I mean, you look at this movie structurally. And if ever there were a screenplay that did not conform to the Sid Field <laughs> screenwriting rules, it's, it's this one. You've got essentially the first two hours of the movie are virtually plotless. There's sort of the storyline of, is Rick going to be able to uh, pull off the scene? Beyond that, like, there's not that much. You've got the specter of the Manson murders looming in the distance that does kind of hang over everything, that sort of provides you with a ticking clock during the first two hours of the movie, and then it, it comes into play in a serious way in, in the third act. But it is a very not traditional movie, and it's only a filmmaker who is as familiar as Quentin is with what has come before who can say, okay, I'm going to throw all of these rules away, um, and we're just going to do our own thing, and I think people are going to dig it. So, yeah, we'll see what audiences think. You just mentioned something that I hadn't really thought of before, but it is really an interesting idea that... Uh, early in the movie, you get to see Charles Manson, and then your brain kind of goes, oh, wait a minute, I see where this movie's going, <laughs> and that carries you. So did you guys play with where that, at least in the final version of the movie, where that kind of revelation of Manson, Manson family landed uh, no actually the manson stuff was always kind of where it is mainly because the scene in which uh, manson shows up at sharon's house is something that actually happened i think in reality uh it wasn't jay who was with her at the time it was someone else but manson saw sharon which is why manson knew that, that movie stars lived there when he uh sent the killers out on their way but that scene uh, like it had to happen before Sharon went to Westwood. So it, it couldn't really happen anywhere else. And, and, and you see the, uh, the Manson girls at the beginning of the movie before uh, they cross paths with Rick and Cliff as they're, uh, they're driving back home. You know, are you 100% clear on this is the Manson family? Maybe not. Maybe they just look like they're some weird hippie girls. But you figure it out over the course of the movie. As, as you guys were trying to finalize the length of the film uh were there other places that you felt like we've got to get to this moment for the audience earlier or later or i think i think probably the biggest thing and this is you know i i mentioned cutting the lancer stuff there was one other pretty major cut in the movie which is the musso and frank sequence was originally a much longer sequence 
Um, I, I want to say my assembly was something in the realm of, of like 28 minutes, something like that. Uh, and sorry, and for, the, because, for the people that are watching and aren't quite as familiar as you are with the film, that's the scene with uh, Pacino where he's talking yes, to him about, so, exactly. hey, you need, uh, to, you need to become an Italian movie star. Yes, the scene early on where 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 Rick sits down with uh, with Marvin Al, Al Pacino and they talk about Rick's career and you see the the, the flashbacks to um, the, the cuts to the different media that, that that Rick has been in. So that sequence was originally much longer, and it was like this giant thing that you had to get past before the movie could really get started. Uh, and we realized pretty early on that that was going to have to change. It needed to be more of a scene that felt like it was part of the movie and kind of hit the key beats that we needed it to hit in terms of setting up Rick as a character and setting up his place in this world. And once we'd kind of done that, then the movie could kind of get on its way. We knew we had to get we had to get through that faster than it was originally envisioned. And, I, and that's, that's kind of the main one. That's a hard thing to go, okay, so... One of the biggest things we have to cut out is that El Pacino guy is just not working. <laughs> he was great. Let me be clear. There was nothing that we cut out because, because the performers weren't up to the task. Oh, I'm one hundred percent sure that's true. And I'm sure that I'm sure Tarantino was probably, you know, thinking the same thing. He goes, I can't believe I'm cutting all this stuff out. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and, and this is this is the thing. It's one of the nice things about working with a writer director is that, uh, you know, he worked really hard on the writing and directing of this movie. And so if he's going to let go of something, um, the main goal uh, while we're editing the movie is what's going to be best for the movie, not what scene am I so proud of that I need to show off my, my writing ability or my directing ability, just what does the movie need? And uh, I mean, he was he was ruthless making this movie, uh, editing this movie, uh, finding what it was. I mean, obviously, having a movie that, like I say, is relatively plotless for the first two days in which it takes place, that doesn't hurt matters any. <laughs> but he was, uh, you know, uh, he knew we had to get it down to a reasonable length. And I know that two hours and 41 minutes might not feel like a reasonable length to some people. But when you factor in that we had to cut out an entire feature in order to get it there, it was a job. <laughs> I'm sure it was. Um, Fred, thank you so much for spending much time with me. I really appreciate it. I want to overstay my welcome with you. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's been fun. Congratulations on the movie. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guest, Fred Raskin, ACE. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.